Of the psychologists who've dealt with these problems, and there have been many, for me, Carl Jung says the most. Now, I don't present him as a uh, final, definitive uh, theorist. His work is suggestive. This is an enormous subject and full of mystery still. So I want to begin today by briefly reviewing Jung's approach to the problem of the elementary ideas, which he calls archetypes of the unconscious. My name is Christopher Maverick, and I am once again here with all three of my regular lovely co-hosts, Wayne and Katia and Hannah. Hey, guys. Yo. And I'm not on cold medicine today, so I should actually be coherent. (laughs) I still have a cough, so sorry. Uh, Yeah. If in case anyone missed on the last episode, North Carolina is mainly a plague state right now. Maybe we're going to see the zombie apocalypse. Well, you missed. Did you see the picture that went around Twitter of uh, the air in Durham is green because of the pollen? Yeah. It literally looks like the zombie apocalypse. So are you guys going to have like inhuman um, powers when we see them in a couple weeks? Uh, Are you suggesting that I don't already? I I have a superpower. Have you been in a terrigenous cocoon? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, would we know if we were in a cocoon? (laughs) <laughs> um, I think they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't know if you were in the Matrix. Well, they're that, in a cocoon, and then they break out. Is how it yeah. works. And yeah, I guess I would leave a mess everywhere anyway. Yeah, yeah. You see it. Everyone, you know? everyone should watch Agents of Shield. It's a great show. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's not have this argument again. <laughs> I, I, just, I just love how we have a we have a pop culture podcast, and every time we mention anything pop culturey, people are like, "There's just uh, one of us is always like, not that." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, uh, I mean, yeah. would it be a pop culture podcast if one of us wasn't salty about it? It's important to have opinions. I think so. I think so, which is what this show is. So this is, um, I guess this is our second very special episode that's previewing PCAACA, which is now we're down to two weeks away and Ooh. frantically finishing papers. Last week, no, we... um. Oh, well, fine. Some Not all of us are as cool as Hannah. <laughs> Some of us are very organized. <laughs> That's right. But last week we did um, works in progress for Hannah and Katya's paper. So I guess this week we're going to do me and Wayne. Yeah, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so in case anyone didn't tune in last week, what is PCA? 
PCA, ACA, is the Pop Culture Association, American Cultural Association annual conference. This year, it's going to be in Washington, D.C., and all four of us will be there presenting papers on varying things. Game theory for both Hannah and Katia, who games, talked about Game studies. Game studies. Mm, nice game fun, theory is economics, generally yes, speaking. Right. <laughs> game studies for you two, both. And we talked about those on last week's episode, episode 52. So on this week, we are going to talk about Wayne and my papers in progress on comic studies. And one of the things you learn in academia is it's all great to be sort of smart and just like discover things, but it doesn't really amount to much unless you can share your work. So this is Mm -hmm. our opportunity to do that. As is this show. This show, I think, is for me, this is very special because the weird thing about PCA is even though it's a big conference, You'll go to a talk and there's anywhere from 10 to 50 people in the room. And when you read a paper, those are the only 10 to 50 people who ever hear you read it. You know, that doesn't really share whatever you have to say with that many people. And so we do things like this podcast. (laughs) But, you know, you get like such uh, great feedback uh, from conferences because people are trapped in a room with you (laughs) and like, I don't know two to three other panelists um, on average, and they really have to focus on your work. Um, Mm -hmm. And as someone who straddles multiple uh, time periods and interests, because I I go to 19th century conferences, I go to novel conferences, I go to 18th century conferences, and now I'm going to popular culture conferences, uh, it's really interesting to see how different periods or disciplines think about the issues I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm a better scholar because I hear all these different points of view. And it's also helpful to just get, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last time. It's helpful to get feedback on your work. I mean, even we talked about last time, uh, Hannah and I at Duke University, we have this thing in our department called Works in Progress, where basically we present conference papers or other things that we're working on to get feedback from our peers. But conferences are also just sort of like, a slightly more formalized version of that. You're taking work to present, present not because it's about to be published or whatever, or as part of your completed dissertation, but it's work that you're getting feedback on. You want to have you want to have perspective, new perspectives on your ideas than something you might have at your home institution. So speaking of, that means we want feedback from you. So normally I do this at the end of the show, but it sort of works to do it right now. If you listen to this show and you enjoy what we say, or even if you don't, leave us a comment. Tell us about it on the blog or on our Facebook page for this episode. You know, just write us comments and let us know what you think of this episode, particularly on this episode and on last week's episode where we're talking about the papers that we're working on. And if you also enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you go in and do four that. Four and a half star are ha- also acceptable. Yeah, uh, they don't let you do four and a half stars, so it's uh, not. <laughs> you can leave as many or as few stars as you want because you are the reviewer. Uh, I think we found the diplomatic versus the opportunist <laughs> just now. But anyway, if you write a review for us, that helps other people find the show. That helps other people find the show, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. And you know, we appreciate it. We like to hear from people. So, and Matt gets sad if you don't. And I get sad. I cry, and you don't want to see he that. Does. No one wants to see that. He does cry. <laughs> It's an ugly, so, ugly <laughs> but I'm not going to cry right now. Instead, Wayne, why don't you tell us about your paper for this year's conference? Okay, this is the this is the part of the show where I I reveal my insecurities about this. It's the first time I've presented at this conference. Um, I don't do academic writing the way the rest of you do. Really, I I've done a lot of writing. I've done a lot of publications. When I do this, and you, Matt, you and I have talked about this. Um, I. 
I know I don't think in the same academic format that a lot of other people do. Some of that is just I've stumbled into this. I didn't train with it. Well, I got my master's and wrote a thesis. That was a long time ago in a very different field. So I, anytime I do something like this, I feel a certain amount of, oh, I don't know that I'm making an argument at all. I'm just pointing out, hey, look at all these cool things I've found that connect. So, so those are my insecurities. It makes you feeling better. I was finishing up my conference paper today and I had that exact thought. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I, and it just, I, I think I find some neat connections, but you know, I, the conclusion of my paper is just like, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's basically yeah. like, I think this is cool. Yeah. That, Still that, figuring that, out why. Yes, that, that, that's kind of where I am. Like, here's the stuff that I think is cool and want to talk about. I don't know how much of it is truly a, an academic argument. So with that in mind, <laughs> so I, I'm doing comics. I, um, there's a series that was published in, Originally in 1984 by Kamiko, the the comics company, one of the earliest of the direct market, new direct sales only comics companies that exploded in the early 1980s. A series called Mage the Hero Discovered by writer and artist Matt Wagner. Uh, it's just one of my all-time favorite series. Um, I wrote several years ago, Salem Press, the academic publisher, uh, put out a series of encyclopedias, for lack of a better word, that are analysis of different comic series. And they sent out a call for papers on that. I wrote the article on Maids the Hero Discovered, uh, and it was published. I got paid for it, which I'm pretty sure makes me the world's foremost scholar on Maids the Hero Discovered, because <laughs> there's not nothing else out there. Uh, um, also, probably the most highly paid author on this podcast, considering <laughs> academic publications don't pay. Yeah, they, yeah. they, actually, they actually paid me for this. Um, so go figure. Um, so it's uh, it, it's out there if you ever see a copy of it. It's at our library here in Pittsburgh, the Carnegie Library. So I've actually seen it in print and didn't pay, you know, $500 for the volume or whatever ridiculous price they charge for these sorts of things. But anyway, I it just it's a series I really liked. Um, and he published it. It was originally 15 issues. Um, at the time, Matt Wagner said that he envisioned it as three distinct story arcs that he would do over the course of his life. Uh, the first one started in 1984. It was 15 issues. The second one didn't appear until 1997. It was 15 issues. The third one just appeared this year. The conclusion, the last issue of it, number 15, came out in February. Uh, so I have waited literally 35 years for the conclusion of this story. Um, I'm not sure I have anything to live for at this point. Avengers? This conference. This conference I have to um, Anyway, it, it just there's a lot going on in this series. So for, for those of you who haven't read it very quickly, it is what Wagner refers to as an allegorical autobiography. He, the main character, Kevin Matchstick, is very obviously an avatar of Matt Wagner himself. He, he just He's drawn to look like him. Uh, Matt has said that many of the characters, many of the events are based on things in his real life. He has turned them into... A, a story. As a story itself, Mage combines the tropes of the superhero. Uh, people have superpowers. They're wearing emblems on their chest. Arthurian literature and mythology. Uh, and urban fantasy. They, long before, you know, several years before that term came into current usage, uh, Matt was doing what I think is easily called urban fantasy at this point. So he, he worked in all these different tropes into a really neat, what I think was a very individual and idiosyncratic comic series. 
the premise of the first series very much it's the hero's journey uh it's you know which is in many ways cliche and has been overused and whatever but the character kevin matchstick just overtly goes through the stages of the hero's journey what i one of the things i find fascinating about that is matt wrote that series several years before knowing anything about joseph campbell's hero's journey he just <laughs> he just did it <laughs> Uh, like 1986, Joseph Campbell appeared on The Power of Myth with, with Bill Moyer and brought this to the public attention. And Matt's reaction was, what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm quoting. Um, <laughs> That's true. I've read that article. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, uh, and, and it really does. And it, it, he found it fascinating that he just tapped into sort of these classic modes of storytelling uh, in, in doing this. You know, Kevin, the, the main character, begins by meeting his mentor. It's the world mage Murph, who is essentially the incarnation of, of Merlin. Uh, spoilers, Kevin Matchstick is the modern incarnation of the power of the Pendragon. He is not King Arthur reincarnated. He has no memories of Arthurian stuff or whatever. He is the current avatar of the power that Arthur carried back in the day. Uh, in the second series, we discover he is not the only person who is the avatar of a mythic power. We meet avatars of Hercules and trickster figures and Kulain and, and lots and lots of other mythic characters. But in the first one, it's very much him as the Pendragon. So the story is mythic, but the setting's modern day, just yeah. to make sure I Yes, okay, it, it. yes, absolutely contemporary urban setting. Um, contemporary to whenever he wrote it, so it starts in the 80s. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. yeah and, and, and for those... For so for those me, those actually, are, mythic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for, like, listeners who don't know, what what are you using urban fantasy? Like, what's the definition of urban fantasy? Like, um, Yeah, and the way that you're using it. Yeah, um, that, that's a good question. I guess urban fantasy very much, in, in my mind, I, and I come to this through Emma Bull and, and Charles DeLint, uh, fantasy authors who are two of the first people that term was used to apply to. Um, very much you know, fairy tale characters, mythic characters, characters out of myth and legend appearing in a contemporary fantasy setting, in contemporary urban setting, you know, contemporary setting. It doesn't have to be urban, I guess, rather than a medieval setting. So rather than, you know, Tolkien-esque epic fantasy it is ogres and monsters and elves and magic or whatnot taking place in chicago so like american gods or like yes. percy jackson or yes whatever. Yeah, very much so yeah and it is it's a genre that is now you know has just taken over the young adult fiction thing so much of mm-hmm. urban fantasy see the first couple of books that that they really used that term to to promote was a book called war of the oak by emma bull and a book called Moonheart by Charles DeLint. Uh, the term goes back earlier than that, but it meant different things back then. So anyway, so the, the story of Kevin Matchstick is very much the, the story of individuation, the main character going on a journey and discovering his heroic destiny. Uh, classic story. The point I make in this paper is that that journey is mirrored. There is one of the characters in the series who is one of the villains of the piece, and in reading this many, many times over, I'm, the, the argument I'm making, I guess, is that it is a hero's journey for Kevin. It is also a journey, not necessarily heroes, but a journey to individuation for this villainous character. His name is Emil. Um, it is his journey as well, and his journey mirrors and sheds light on Kevin's journey. So what I'm doing in the paper is kind of going through and pointing out ideas like the, the Jungian archetypes, uh, the hero's journey. Uh, Emil very much as the a shadow character, the, the Jungian shadow, the archetype of the shadow, uh, embodying qualities that Kevin does not have, and the two of them mirroring each other's journey. So that's that's kind of what I'm working on. 
So <laughs> there it is. <laughs> it was, yeah. so, well, that. <laughs> I just I would I would love if I mean I and I know you're gonna I know you're still in process of writing the actual conclusion, but if, <laughs> but if you actually and you're talking about them, and so there's that <laughs> it's like with no context whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe you could resolve it with oh, so we resolved well nothing. I resolved nothing yeah, here. Pretty much, yes. Yeah, there you go. And then please please leave a review on my podcast. Uh, if, if you enjoyed this paper. Oh. Uh, no, that's really cool. I guess I, like um, having having basically no familiarity with this comic book mm-hmm. uh, whatsoever and really only a cursory knowledge of comic books in general. Like, so what is that it? Because I think it's really interesting. Thinking, that wouldn't Sorry? matter. I expect, let's see, it's going to be, it's a room of comic scholars and, you know, assuming you guys come, which means you'll be non-comic scholars, but then the other 30 people in the room will be comic scholars. I've read it. Wayne, you're giving the talk. So I'm going to say for mage, Mm, five or six of the 30 people in the room <laughs> will yeah. have read some of it. Okay, so it's like a relatively deep deep cut oh, yeah. of comic book yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah, right. very much so. I'm assuming it's not something I've heard of. I'm like, okay, I at least like read enough comic books that I like know the main... Yeah. I, I, I know the surface level comic books. Yeah. I, I taught it in my class last fall and it was, because it is, it's very much you know, he deals with all the superhero tropes. I mean, the, my approaching class when I was doing my section on superheroes is I introduced them yeah. to the ideas in Batman Year One, which is a more traditional, it's a deconstruction, but it's more traditional. Here's Batman, here's Catwoman, here's some villains. It's the kind of superheroes. I have heard of those people. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, then, I know those ones. And then I, did, I did Watchmen, which is a deconstruction of the traditional superhero tropes. Sure. I really believe Mage, which actually came out before Watchmen, was deconstructing it, but in a very different way. I think in many ways he was reconstructing the idea of the modern superhero. And it was a mm-hmm. wonderful palate cleanser in class after two weeks of Watchmen. Yeah. Pretty dark. Yeah, Mage has dark yeah. points, really but it's not dark the same way. And for me, right. I guess, I, well, I guess that goes to my question is I think like it's interesting to do this sort of, because I guess I, I, it makes sense why sort of Arthurian legend, like Arthurian legends and things like that actually like now that you're bringing it up like meshes with sort of superhero tropes but i would have never thought about it in that context Mm -hmm. and i guess i was just wondering like what like how in putting those two things in conversation in this book or in the series like changes them because i think i mean because in some i mean like as I feel like it's fairly cliche at this point, like superheroes are totally like modern myth, like modern myths and comic mm-hmm. books in general, I think really do that. But I think that there's something a little bit different about going back to like, for lack of a better word, the more mythic mythy myths. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what, what, what's interesting with this is around the same time, and Wagner talked about this in some interviews, there was a book that came out called Camelot 3000 that was published by DC Ooh. by Brian Bowen. Badass title. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and, a de- and a deeper cut in that a, when I said six of the 30 people who have read that, I will be the only yeah. other person in the room and, 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 <laughs> who's read Camelot, Camelot 3000. 3000. Camelot 3000, I, at the time I thought was really good. I don't think it holds up as well as some of the others. Um, mm. I reread it. I reread it last year. It does not. It was one of the first books published by DC. It dealt with uh, transgender issues it was the first official lesbian kiss in a comic um that, oh, wow. that, yeah that, that scared mm-hmm. the hell out of people in 1982 yeah uh, and it was really controversial 
but it was it was very much the characters of Kane lesbian transgender. Well, yeah, the lesbian, yeah, the lesbian non-binary transgender character in 1982. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it was it was really progressive for its time, even though it's a little dated at this point. Uh, but it, it, sure. was, it, was, it was very much the Arthurian characters were reincarnated in the year 3000 in a science fiction setting, and they remembered their lives as Lancelot, etc. So it was a much more, here are these characters dealing overtly with these tropes. With Mage, I mean, this is a spoiler. It's not revealed that he is the Pendragon and this is Arthurian until the next to last issue, the penultimate chapter. Oh. If you've read any Arthurian stuff at all, it's obvious from the moment he sits down and talks to this magician. Sure. Yeah. And receives a magical bat that he uses like a sword. Yeah, exactly. So, so, <laughs> yeah. so we, we see that play out. But the, the symbolism is really relatively subtle in in the first series and and i think that can yeah it's not like connecticut yankee and king arthur's court like it's exactly right uh and then the other thing he does in the three series is he allows the characters to age because kevin mactic is based on him in the second series he's 15 years older and in a very different place in his life in the series that's just concluded Mm -hmm. he is in his 50s and has a wife and two children the the character does as well as the the creator himself so it's he takes elements from his own life that allegorical autobiography the the second Mm -hmm. series in particular when he discovers that there are other avatars each of these other avatars are a mythic character i.e hercules or or you know the siegfried and yeah some of these other characters each one of them are also another comics creator who he knew or worked with oh that's really cool oh that's cool so you can pinpoint who these people if you know comics you can pinpoint who most of these people are um so So it's like a it's so that's really fascinating because then it's also sort of like the hero's journey but it's also like the coming of age Mm -hmm. of like an entire cohort of comic book creators Mm -hmm. so one of the so it's a question specifically his place in it yeah okay right uh so and I, I'm not being 100% serious. So you said that the hero's journey is mirrored by, like, the villain's journey mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, is the villain, like, an avatar for, like, something else? Is it, like, can you read it as, like, a darker half of, like, the hero? Not, I, I, are you going to go Freudian on him and, like, psychoanalyze? More, more Jungian. Uh, I, I'm more Jungian in my approach to these things, hence the, the shadow idea. Um, not yeah. not really specifically, no. There is the, the big bad of the series. The Dark Lord is the Umbra Sprite. Uh, the Umbra Sprite is a shadow king. He's also a shadow magician. But he is distant. He does all of his evil through a cohort of his children, a, a five identical brothers known as Grackleflints. Uh, the only way to distinguish them is they have different powers. Amo is the only one of them who is distinguished distinguishable by having a personality. Uh, he looks just like the <laughs> others. Yeah, he looks just like the others. You see no evidence of him having a superpower throughout the entire series. Uh, it, but, but he's the only one who really stands out at all as a person. And it's revealed... Here's, again, what's, what's interesting, just just as a caveat, mm-hmm. I've read this three times. Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't, not the most recent version, because each time he does them, does in the next series, I go back and I read the yeah. original one. So I've now read the original, the original series three times, mm-hmm. and I don't remember what Emil's brothers' names are. Yeah, I, I, I can name them. <laughs> I, 
I can name them. I, I still can't just off the top of my head tell you which one has which power. As much as I, I'm I don't even this. remember what, what their names are anymore. Uh, yeah. Radu, Piet, Stannis, and Laszlo. Laszlo. I knew that one. I knew one. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I just like to point out, you could have literally made up any name, so we would have all been like, mm-hmm, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> but in in the next in the last chapter, in the next last chapter, it is revealed what Amos' power is. And I found this fascinating, even when I read it way back when. I thought this was fascinating. Murph reveals that Amos' power is initiative, and that makes him the most dangerous. He's the only one who mm. challenges his father. His, the Umber Sprite just gets obsessed in his battle with Mirth and lose sight of, of what the, the villainous goals actually are and becomes more and more distant and more and more ineffectual, quite honestly. So throughout the series, you see Amo challenging his father in ways that the others just simply never do. And what I see mirroring that is what Kevin is lacking throughout the series is it's, it's the step of the hero's journey called refusal of the call. Kevin wants nothing to do with this until the last page of, of chapter 14. He spends the entire series denying his destiny. He's surrounded by ogres and magic. He's like, nah, none of this is happening. That's real. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, so the very thing that is Amos power initiative is what Kevin lacks throughout the entire first series. Hmm. So that's sort of the central focus. That's what I'm building to in the paper is, is that and giving the evidence of that and how, how in the climax of the first series, those two things echo each other and what's going on in the first series. In the second series, Amo returns as the big bad of the series. He is now the Dark Lord. But now that he is the Dark Lord, he's just kind of playing a role. He's lost any initiative. He doesn't know what to do now that he's there. Whereas Kevin is at that phase. He has accepted his destiny. He is the king. And he's kind of an arrogant jerk. He's trying to tell all the other avatars what to do. He's now the king. He controls everything. He knows what to do. So now he has an overabundance of initiative and, and self self. Uh, uh, word that I can't think of right now. <laughs> He's very holier than thou in the second series. Yeah, self-important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so at, once he accepts the call, he moves into the arrogant phase. So once again, he and Amor are balancing each other, but on opposite sides of that spectrum. So, so that those are those are the ideas I'm playing with, and I've essentially told you all the pieces of the paper without going into the specifics or showing you the slides. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it, it is. I I come to this entire thing. My my background, my education background is clinical psychology. So that yeah, I haven't worked in that field in lots of years. But that's still some of those ideas, the Jungian ideas and the mythic ideas and all that stuff, still seems to underlie any of the analysis types of things I do. I, I keep coming back to those same sorts of tropes and ideas whenever I do any of my analysis. Yeah, that's really interesting because actually, so in the like longer version of my paper, which is um, that I talked about last week, the like full dissertation chapter version of it, like I actually talk a lot. Um, one of my like about myth and sort of like theories of myth and history, less so which like the Jungian kind of framework mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. But um, I just like when you were talking, it reminded me a lot of um, I'm like blanking on the name of the person who originally comes up with this term, but I use it um, from this guy named Joseph Molly's work. But this idea of like myth history and the idea that like basically, which I feel like is this is like a fairly like well worn concept at this point, but the idea that like myths produce the way that I use it is sort of like myths are the stories that you tell about the world and they actually, whether they're factual or not, doesn't matter. They like shape how you understand mm-hmm. yeah. reality and therefore the actions you take in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's like this interesting way. It's like this way of talking about like how non-factual stories, like I talk about addiction in the world and like, uh, 
the context of like alt facts and like current political garbage. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's really interesting to think about what you're what like the way that he's using Arthurian legend and mythology is like is 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 in this like autobiographical way where mm-hmm. he's very much talking about his real life, but then allegorizing it and mythologizing it in a way that like folds multiple histories in really interesting ways. Cause he's ref- like referencing like the Arthurian past, his own past, and also like this like mythic space um, at the same time, which is really cool. Well, two of the things I do mention in my paper, uh, Joseph Campbell, who you know came up with the, the hero's journey in the first place. There's a quote from him I use called, which is, Mythology is to to relate found truth to the living of a life, which is what mm-hmm. what Matt Wagner is attempting to do. He's attempting to mythologize his own life. And Jung, in his therapy, he he encouraged people to ask the question, "What myth are you living?" And the mm-hmm. idea of that is to understand what unconscious myths may shape our life. And that's not necessarily very overtly. Oh, I'm living the myth of King Arthur, but just <laughs> what assumptions do we have about life? What stories have we been told in our culture as as cultural stories as well as just you know, personal stories and family stories. What stories have we been told about who we are as people and how much are we unconsciously acting out those stories, whether they're good and healthy for us or not? So part of the, mm-hmm. part of the Jungian therapy idea is if you can identify these myths that you're living, you can begin addressing the unhealthy ones and, and change your mm-hmm. story, change the myth that you're living. So, so Matt Widener is making this overt in his comic. Yeah, it's also like an interesting way. I mean, I don't know if this is, comes with the comics, but it sounds like that's at least part of it because he's sort of allegorizing all these other comic book artists. It's like myth is also a really important part to like community building, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like how you identify who's an in-group, who's an out-group. I mean, even like we've we talked about this at episodes this is like, about gatekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. Like knowing like if you like if you know the deep cuts of comic books like you're a certain kind of comic book fan versus like me who like okay i've like i think the the, the most obscure not obscure thing i've read is like pluto now <laughs> but um the name's escaping me off to look it up you might be interested in this wayne but there's this really interesting idea um from an anthropologist in the sort of mid-20th century that's like writing about the concept of mythic time mm-hmm. and that the idea it's like particularly talking about like various um, cultures where there's like coming of age rituals that are specifically mythologized. This, so like the idea of is this uh, yeah. Eliad? Or Eliad? Yes, yeah. that is who it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. And it says his, his uh, what is it? The what's the name of the chapter? It's like something in the, uh, the forest. Uh, yeah. This is going to annoy me <laughs> so much. But anyway, yeah. it, I, I believe it's him. And I, I, no, you're, no, I think, I think, I think you're right. But um, there's a phrase I believe he uses called participation mystique, and mm-hmm. it's the idea of you know, just I mean, what the word sounds like. You know, participating in the mystic of the world. I mean, when you when you're aware of the myth you're living, you participate in in it more fully. You become part of yeah. that. Um, and it and it's also for him like this way of like uh like not literally obviously but like time travel right yeah. it's basically like when you engage when you engage in reenacting myths like even if it's allegorical you're actually suspending time and sort of traveling back and like for him it's like I wouldn't say like literally but it's more than just like you're thinking about the past like you're actually for him reenacting the past and bringing it into the present in a really meaningful way so like the idea of putting yourself in a text as like this reborn Arthurian power and like doing all this stuff to kind of like fold those two mythologies together is a really interesting way of kind of like recreating that mythic time Mm -hmm. in like a textual object rather than a cultural practice in a way that like 
yeah, I think it's just I, like, I don't know if I have anything like really concrete yeah. to say about that other than it's a really interesting way of thinking about the role of myth across time and how it sort of like relates a lot of elements of human culture that might seem disparate yeah. and kind of like builds these connections in interesting ways. Is Matt tying that in specifically to the superhero tropes as well? I and mean, we talk about mm-hmm. superheroes as a modern mm-hmm. mythology. But, you know, these characters, these avatars all have very specific superpowers as well. And they're all wearing, you know, it, I, I mentioned the chest symbols, but it's all, it's t-shirts. It's like, you know, we talked about you're wearing a Batman shirt. Well, Kevin throughout mm-hmm. the series is wearing a shirt with a lightning bolt on it. And it's pretty overtly based on Captain Marvel Shazam lightning bolt. But it's just a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a t-shirt. In theaters now. Yeah. And and pretty much all the rest of them are doing that as well. Um, Kirby Hero, who is the oh, Olympian uh, avatar of Hercules, has a, a, a lion's face on it. It's the Nemean lion from the, the labors of Hercules. But more importantly, it's in the diamond-shaped mm-hmm. logo of the Superman symbol mm-hmm. so you know, he's very conscious about using these the superhero symbolism and tropes and tying it mm-hmm. to, to classic mythology but then tying it to individual people's lives as well so i just i find all of that really fascinating yeah it's like a really interesting way of like using storytelling i feel like to actually make the same point that like Eliot and, and jung is kind of making of like that myth is both like storytelling and about like cultural connection, mm-hmm. but it is also consequential for how you live your daily life. And I'm, I'm going to throw a footnote. And, and vice versa. Yeah, I'm going to throw a footnote out there that, that ended up not being in the paper because I just couldn't work it in. I don't know how important it is, but I, I also, I have a suspicion. Uh, I know Matt Wagner's mother was an English teacher. So he was exposed to a lot of this stuff fairly young. Mm-hmm. In my mid twenties, at the same time I was reading Mage, I I was introduced to the author Herman Hesse. Uh, not personally, just as, <laughs> as a reader. Um, yeah, to his work, and and in my mid twenties, just sort of obsessively read everything I could by Herman Hesse. Just his his way of approaching the world just really spoke to me as as a person. Uh, if you're not familiar with him, the book Steppenwolf, which you know the band took their name from, um, but he wrote a book called Demian, and he wrote it when he was undergoing Jungian psychology. He was he met Jung, became friends with him, but was undergoing Jungian psychoanalysis. And Demian is absolutely full of the ideas of the shadow and that growth of the individual by incorporating the shadow aspects of yourself. And the main character's name is Emil. And I Mm. have a sneaking suspicion. I've never asked Matt, but I have a sneaking suspicion that might've been where he got the name. Mm. Didn't make it in the paper. I can't confirm or deny that. I just, I think boy, the themes are similar enough and that name is so specific and unusual. That, um, also, whether you could confirm or deny it, that's the sort of stuff that like English major careers yeah, are made of. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you think but that, that you, you, you know, Wayne's met Matt. No, I know. Matt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, you know, I, I, but also, the death of the author doesn't right. matter. Yeah, well, I, I remember. <laughs> I was, I was like, we had a person come to Duke, uh, and he was giving a talk on his dissertation, and someone on the committee said. Uh, well, did you find any letters confirming that Swinburne thought this way? He said, no, but it wouldn't matter yeah. <laughs> for my argument. And then, like, years later, he found an, a letter from Swinburne confirming <laughs> the thing. What he was arguing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, 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 and just, just to, to yeah, you say I know Matt. I have met Matt at conventions. Yeah, so, we have yeah. corresponded. Right. 
He's not, on not a good friend. 80s. I've met him as well. And yeah, I, I just think that Mage yeah, is an interesting book because as formative as it, as it is in your life, we weren't joking. We were saying it's kind of a deep cut. You know, Matt yeah. is Matt is a very important comic book author and writer who is He's done. He's done much more than this. He's right. worked for DC. He's done tons of stuff. Yes, but he is not at so, such a level of fame that if you have a question, you can't just tweet at him and ask. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, what, what, you're, what? You're, you guys know Matt. Wait, wait, wait. No, that's the conclusion to your paper. You could just tweet him and ask, and you can all wait in real time for the response. <laughs> When I was, there, we solved it. When we I, resolved when, it. When I was doing the thing for Salem Press, like he just, you know, his, his email, like he was, he's on Facebook or whatever. And I remembered something from the letters page. I was doing an analysis of the art and I, I remembered some like really obscure coloring technique he used. I couldn't find anything about it. Like, because this was in a magazine or letters page from 1986 mm-hmm. or whatever. I wrote to Matt and said, hey, this is what I remember. And he wrote back like, wow, good memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's awesome (laughs) i also love that like if you ever had to actually like cite your thing then he's like i confirmed it on on twitter here's the screenshot yeah like i I have the the email here someplace (laughs) that's awesome yeah so but anyway that's that's i've resolved nothing i'm done okay (laughs) but will be resolved because twitter Well, see, so mine, see, this is a little different for me because you're working, you're working with, you know, with Matt Wagner, who, you know, deep cut, but you, you've said on many occasions on this show and just knowing you in real life that this is one of, I mean, you've said the beginning of this talk, um, it's formative, uh, formative book in your life. And now you've, now that it's over. I, you'll die. I mean, what do you, what do you, you know, what are yeah, you going to do yeah, with the rest yeah. of your life? Well, Matt, he, he, he just announced a new Grendel series. There hasn't been one of those in 30 years. Oh, so wow. He, okay. he's, he's, got me on, he's got me on the hook for another one now. Okay. <laughs> well, great. Okay. So, so I, so wait, as long as he keeps making comic books, I just live I, forever. I what, what was it, Matt? There was another one. When I, I said that to you when the book ended and, and you meant, oh, leave it to Chance. Yeah, leave it to Chance. Leave it to leave it to Chance. And, and I just assume you've made me immortal. Now. Yeah, <laughs> leave it to Chance as a comic book. Just because that's that's worth it. That's a deep cut worth explaining. Leave it to Chance was a comic yeah. book that made um, 12 issues. I'm, I think I'm doing this. Remember, I believe they were 13. No, well, no, originally 13. was it 13 before yeah. the break? Okay, so it was 13 yeah. issues before the break. It wasn't canceled. It's just, you know, just it was late and it was late on and hiatus. It was, yeah, it was on delayed. It was delayed and on hiatus. And then literally like 10 years later, issue 14 came out. Yeah. Just, no, that, was, <laughs> that, that, that was issue 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah, 12, okay, issues, yeah, so 12 issues and then issue 13 comes out. And like, if you're, if you were you subscribing at the store, it just like, Oh yeah. Chance. Okay. <laughs> this is. <laughs> and wait, the title's chance. Yeah. Leave it to, oh my God, that's yeah, so it, perfect. It is, it is an urban fantasy about a young girl in a world where her father is the foremost occult investigator in the world. Yep. And her name is Chance, and he basically wants to keep her safe and away from everything. But she's young and plucky and goes out and gets involved in all this stuff anyway. Right. Uh, and it, yeah, it, as, it, as we do. Yeah, and it, mm-hmm. it's, it's wonderful. It's James Robinson and Paul Smith. It's beautifully drawn. Uh, it just It's fun. It's a great series. I would so wish it would come back, and it needs to be movies. Well, and and it I just love that the title of the publication history just like matched so wonderfully. It wasn't wasn't canceled again. Issue issue 13 came out and it's only been, I don't know, 15 years? 
you know. It'll, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but yeah if, if, if I'm waiting for the next issue of that, you may have made me immortal. So thank you. Could happen at any point. <laughs> Not canceled. It's just, you know, he's working on it. You know, it, it'll happen one day. <laughs> That's awesome. So anyway, my last several papers at PCA, I've done, I did a couple of things on, uh, first on some really culturally relevant, well-known, well-known things. Like I wrote, I wrote about, I wrote about Harley Quinn one year. Everybody knows who that is. I wrote about Killing Joke one year, one of the most famous comics of all time. And then the next year I, w- I wanted to pick something that I knew was a little more controversial. So like last year I wrote about Iron Fist. Um, but it was still, you know, Iron Fist had a lot of people, Iron Fist, the TV show had a lot of people who didn't like it, but I still was able to say, yeah, but I think there's something there. It had some fans, so it wasn't controversial. It wasn't all that controversial. So I figured, how can I outdo myself this year? And I decided to write a paper rather than about one of my favorite creators, the way Wayne did. I wrote about one of my least favorite, (laughs) (laughs) but someone who's insanely yeah, who's insanely famous. Uh, his name's Rob Liefeld. And Rob Liefeld was a, or is, he's alive, um, a, is a comic book creator from initially rose to fame in the very late 80s, I want to say, early 90s. Yeah. He's mostly, he's arguably, mostly. Ar- I'm going to say arguably one of the most influential artists of the 1990s. And that's what I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue that yeah. Ro- Rob Liefeld, who... I mean, well, I, I have a quote where I'm going to say if you're, you know, it's almost embarrassing as a serious comic scholar, because when I say this in, at PCA, people are going to laugh. They're going to go, as, as a, you know, as a serious comic scholar, it's just understood that you don't like his work because he is known in particular for, um, let's see, I said we know uh, complete and total lack of proportion. Impossibly complex guns and swords, a grossly distorted sense of anatomy, blatant sexual objectification of female bodies, and a complete and total inability to draw feet at all. (laughs) (laughs) I really love that last one. Yeah, the last and, one's a yeah. deal breaker. And also and, and, and anybody, anybody who knows this knows exactly what he's talking yes. about. Yes, and also pa- <laughs> uh, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know comic books that well, and I'm like, okay, actually, I know enough comic books in the 90s, yeah. and I think I'm pretty if, sure, like, I, if, I can picture if, what's... If Rob draws yeah. a person, they're almost always standing in front of a rock. <laughs> just, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> just so there, there's smoke or steam around their ankles. Yeah, the, you, Okay, this sounds less like a paper and more like a roast. <laughs> well, yeah. only that part. But, but but that is that is that is what he is famous for. And in particular, the thing that that bothers people a lot is um, it's it's all, it's very in vogue right now to sort of there's are there are lots of web pages devoted to Rob Liefeld's really really bad <laughs> art that basically most, the forty worst panels of Rob Liefeld. Yeah, yeah. The forty other worst panels yeah. of Rob yes. Liefeld. There are you you can oh find many of these. I know yeah, Googling you find, later. Uh, yeah, you can find many of these. Maybe I'll link one in the show notes of just problematic things about his artwork, particularly when it comes to the way in which he draws women. People get upset because he draws them. Um, it, Rob believes that a woman's spine works like a slinky. <laughs> and <laughs> yep, yeah, nope. Yeah. I know exactly the co- the yeah. style, even if I'm whether or not it's yeah, his art so, or not. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, these are terrible. Sorry, <laughs> googling. Just, just go googling. <laughs> 
first, okay. by the way, if you Google Google images, first thing that pops up, the 40 worst joins Rob yep. Leibold. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That, is, that is the kind of thing that, um, that people, that is the in vogue argument to make right now. That said. Okay, so it's not just that he's like a poor artist. It's specifically well, that see, the way and, he represents. And, and we're going to get to that because I'm going to say he's not a poor artist. I don't like him, but I'm going to say he's not a poor artist. And it, and it took me yeah. a while to figure this I, out. And I, right. I, I have an anecdote about exactly that, but I'll let you continue. Yeah, so because so. my argument is that it's not just that he's a poor artist. It's that he's problematic for a reason that I wanted to like really sit down and think about. And I, and I want to like sort of work through his career. And I, and I said, you know, I, I'll admit it. I was of the age when he rose to prominence. There was a time where I kind of, I mean, he was never my favorite artist. Uh, I, I was a big fan of one of his friends, Jim Lee, and even more so of the style, the squiggly line art style, which I, Wayne will know what I'm talking about when I say the squiggly line, the squiggly thin line art style, which is what Rob did. Um, Art Adams was my favorite creator of that time. So, but I was, but I, I liked Rob enough at that time because, you know, I was 14 and, and his, and when he's, and he, when right. he's coming out, he's drawing huge boobed women. It appealed to a 14 year old. That's, that's what, that's what he was there for. And, um, 14, 16, wherever, you know, wherever he's, and then young right, adolescent. Right. And then I, I sort just, of learned as a side note, as a side note, I'm sorry, I'm putnoting this. Katya Hanna, creator of Deadpool. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's why he, for cultural yes, yeah. context. Oh, yes. Okay. Cultural context. Yes. Rob is, Rob is a very rich man today. Yes. Not Rob is a very, very rich man today because creator of Deadpool at a point in um, for various reasons that are not part of this talk, he is one of the few comic creators who for better or worse managed to get a royalty deal from Marvel to and make a lot to of where money. now Rob is a Rob oh, is wow. a very, very, a very good royalty deal. So Rob is a very rich man today and doesn't work all that often. He is where he just started a new book for Marvel um, last last week, but he's um, mm-hmm. but he's, he, he he's he does he does well he, for what he does he is probably the most famous for it though i would say not the best but that he's my example and because he has of that a tremendous fan base. yes he has a tremendous fan base. yes even today it's dwindled but even today he's he's he certainly <clears throat> has his fans and well i mean i can yeah. see that in these awful drawings <laughs> oh god <laughs> rob never listens anyway. to the show <laughs> Hi, Rob. <laughs> I feel like I feel like he's probably heard yeah. it all at this point. He's going to leave us a five star review. He's going to give us our first five you know star review. I, I, Look, <laughs> we have a five star review. Also, also, he <laughs> has a lot do. of money, and yeah. I don't. So he's the real winner here. I think. Yeah. And, right? Yeah, he didn't to, become an to, academic. To his so, credit, you know. I have seen Rob interviewed many times, and he yeah. very much has a good sense of humor about like uh, yes. now he does. Um, nineteen ninety five, Rob Liefeld was a jerk who had a lot of problems. Um, 1990, 1992, Rob Liefeld famously did a commercial for Levi's jeans where he was interviewed by, Spi- by Spike Lee. Um, watch it on YouTube. Maybe I'll link that in the show notes because it's hilarious. And, and yeah. the best part about it is Spike says, so you created X-Force. And Rob says, yes, I did. And Rob, and then Spike says, did you ever have any formal art training? And Rob says, no, didn't need it. I just have a good imagination. Rob's lack of formal art. No, he, 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 <laughs> yes, it, it does. It does take an imagination to imagine women of yes. these proportions. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and he's, um, and, but he had a massive ego. He 
almost well, actually, for a long time, he did ruin his career by alienating all of his partners in in Image Comics and basically making the industry hate him. And he will acknowledge today that that was for good reason. Now he's a middle aged father and he's calmed down a bit. And he has a, he has a relatively good sense of humor about <laughs> about who and what he is. Uh, famously, he you know we made fun of the feet. He also draws lots of pouches all over everybody, and people joked about it a bunch. So eventually, he posted this image to Twitter where he drew a superhero composed only of pouches who has oh my God. <laughs> who at this point i believe gotten his own book wayne the no, uh, there was a short story in something yeah, he was there was one a shot cover yeah and yeah and there was like that's yeah, actually he's, pretty he's got a sense of humor about it so he knows he knows what he is that's good yeah. okay so he's got a sense of humor about it and um and I, I don't think anybody would deny that he is very influential for the sort of grim and gritty 90s era of comics, which was in, in my paper, I argue that it's a response. It's a direct response to the deconstructions that were happening with Watchmen and Year One, Dark Knight Returns, those, those books that Wayne mentioned earlier that happened. And Miller and Moore were both trying to do something very specific with those books. They were trying to say the world we live in is really shitty. They hated Reaganomics. They hated Cold War politics. And we are ruining the world. These are problems so bad that superheroes cannot punch their way through it. That's the theme of Watchmen. No matter what you do. Uh, Mm -hmm. No matter what you do, no matter how powerful you are, some things are just too broken to fix. That is the point of Watchmen that Moore was trying to make. And I think that if you read it critically, you sort of see that. If you're a fanboy, you see that now it's okay for superheroes to kill people. And certain people glamorize that. And an entire industry of people like Rob grew up reading Watchmen and sort of, oh, well, this is what superheroes are supposed to be. They're supposed to be cold-blooded killers. Also, famously, I think Zack Snyder, who grew up to be able to make the Watchmen movie and some really bad Batman and Superman movies, also glamorizes Mm. Watchmen. And except for he only glamorizes the parts, the parts where heroes are vicious. And in fact, in interviews, you always see people him say, I just don't think people understand deconstructing superheroes like I do. And I, and I keep, every time he says that, I keep say, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah. <laughs> um, Snyder did things like he would, you know, in Watchmen, Night Owl is a pudgy, overweight dude. And Silk Spectre is attractive, but she's wearing kind of a sheer mini dress as her as her outfit. So in order to fix that, Snyder makes the movies and he puts them in like sculpted bodysuits for Night Owl, like Batman has of, the, of that era, because he didn't want him to look fat. <laughs> and he, you know, he took Silk Spectre's outfit and he basically put her in a dominatrix outfit for for the film because those things made more sense to Snyder. He only really understood the aesthetic value. And I think that happened from a lifetime of reading. Yeah, completely missing the point of those two characters. Right, right. It happened from a lifetime of reading image comic books, things by Rob Liefeld. Mm -hmm. And so he wants everything to be the Matrix. And he doesn't understand what those things were trying to say. And I think the entire industry sort of got built around that. And I start looking throughout the paper. I sort of look at um, some changes in artistic styles from the Silver Age to the Golden Age and Silver Age, all the way through the modern age when Watchmen comes out and into the Dark Age of Image Comics. And I start looking at the ways in which uh, which women are sexualized in comics. Um because it's not a new thing. Uh, there are, if you look at the ways in which Lois Lane was drawn in the 30s, 
it was always there. If you look at the ways in which the male characters were drawn, Superman, mm-hmm. Superman is, you know, we talked on a different episode about why he wears the underwear on the outside of his cape, because it's an allusion to strong men from circus, because a male superhero was always designed around this sort of form follows function and I must function as a living weapon kind of thing. So the male character needed to be strong. Female characters. No, I was just going to say, just from a purely artistic point of view, you, the, the the way the characters are drawn in that exaggerated, superheroic way, mm-hmm. I see a direct line from Jack Kirby, the god of comics artists. Yes. All- Jack Kirby to Michael Golden mm-hmm. to Art Adams. Mm-hmm. To Rob Liefeld, I, I can see that that line absolutely very clearly. Of and I actually, I actually end up citing a book that, that I'm sure Wayne's read. There's a book that Stanley and John Buscema wrote in the '70s called "How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way," because by then the comic style, the superhero style, had become so so formalized and codified that there was a very specific book of this is how you draw a superhero. These are the, these are the proportions that a superhero has. A superhero is eight and Mm -hmm. three quarters heads high, slightly more heroic proportions than the Vitruvian man that Leonardo da Vinci uses. Although technically shorter proportions than fashion model. Yeah. And and absolutely. And I I think that's sort of, that's going to be my point because they're not realistic. And Lee was trying to say that they were intentional doing them not realistically however he also points out that the Mm -hmm. male character needs to be angular and masculine and the female characters while still eight and three quarter heads high they needed to be soft and curvy and the book very clearly points out that their femininity needed to be more important than their superhero-ness and that was just sort of a role of comics all the way through the modern age because women were there to be saved so I mean, I get the obvious like 14 year old boy rationale for that. But like, what is the stated they, reason? They don't state it. It's accepted. And I and, my, and I don't talk about it in, the, in this paper. Okay. But in my dissertation, I argue that it's an extension of and, and Wayne's read this chapter. But I argue it's an extension of Campbell's monomyth. The superhero, the superhero myth is sort of built around perpetual publication. So in the monomyth, you have a, you have mm-hmm. a meeting with the goddess and you have a seduction with the temptress. And the female character in the classic monomyth is an objective along the hero's journey. You know, you save the princess from the dragon. You rescue mm-hmm. Princess Leia from from the Death Star. You know, that's the, that is that is part of the story. Mm-hmm. So the female character. So in order to fulfill that function, they have to be more ladylike than superhero. Right, absolutely. Because. Even in in the golden age, even female superheroes, with the exception of Wonder Woman and Phantom Lady, there are a few. But for for the most part, female superheroes are still there to be rescued by their male partner. Gotcha. Hawk Girl gets captured mm-hmm. as much as she does anything else, mm-hmm. um, and Hawkman has to go save her. Supergirl, Superman, you know, she's Superman's cousin, but he's often saving her or correcting her mistakes. That's what she's there for. So her femininity is sort of important. I did a paper on this a couple of years ago. And like I said, it's not really in this. It's in my dissertation. But the idea was they really needed to sort of encode the femaleness, which they equated with beauty or sexuality in in their female characters. And mm-hmm. and that becomes and, and a part and of her style. A certain yeah. degree of frailty. Very much rounder, softer lines. Rounder lines, softer lines. And then the 90s happens, and this is the positive sort of thing that the image revolution they, l- lets happen, is once it's okay for heroes to be hyper-violent, female heroes get to be heroes in their own right so long as they're hyper-violent. Interesting. <laughs> but yeah, but in order to not be seen as just masculine, 
they um, Jeffrey Brown makes an argument of this as he writes a book. He he argues that in order to not be seen as essentially men in drag, they played up the femininity, the sexualized femininity. They mm. become drag queens. He says they he says they play up the sexuality so hard mm. so that you don't forget. With with a few exceptions, Martha Washington goes to war. One of the exceptions. Yeah, brilliant book. But most of these '90s books end up doing this thing where. To not make her feel, appear masculine, and Martha Washington, by the way, she's a she's a marine or an army. She's a marine, isn't she? I think so. Yeah, yeah so, read that. Yeah, they, 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 they forgotten Frank Miller. Or, yeah, she's yeah. very much a jarhead, very masculine butch woman who looks like she might be fighting a war. Most of them become massively sexualized. Witchblade, um, yeah. everybody in Youngblood, they become massively sexualized, and that's just the new look of the female the female in comics of the nineties. Mm. So what I end up doing in the paper is I argue that one of the ways that they do this is they take advantage of what's called the golden ratio. The golden ratio is a mathematics concept um, mm. based on the Fibonacci sequence of numbers. Uh, one, two, three, five. It's basically add two numbers together and that's the next number in the series. And if you plot that, you end up with this continuous spiral and in erotic and fashion photography and advertising photography and just aesthetically, we tend to place things along golden ratios in order to make compositions more appealing. The human brain is sort of drawn to the shape that occurs in nature. So we lay out compositions like that in ads. And in order to make the female character even more appealing than just sexualizing her in general, um, I argue, and I have some images that show this, that they start to specifically draw the female characters in the image era along this golden spiral. They are standing, they are standing in a, in a pose that sort of places mm. them very clearly sort of um, sexualized. Uh, Hawkeye initiative comments on this line. Hence, yep, hence that, the noodle spiral. That, yeah. That would explain the very, very curved. Or if you look at it, yeah, famously, like yeah, yeah, like the other thing you see a lot is you see you see women pose (laughs) such that you can see their butt and their boobs at the same time, like twisting. Yeah, those are always my favorite. It's sort of like this is very weird. But if you if you you lay a golden spiral um, uh, overlay over it, they will exactly match that. That's how you make that happen. And it's a weird thing. It's what makes it. It's huh. what makes things sexually pleasing to the brain, and it plays into Laura Mulvey male gaze theory and blah 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 blah, um, which I'll explain. Right. In the paper. Yeah. See. So, yes. See, see other, other episodes. <laughs> see the first episode I yes, was ever yeah. on, actually. Oh, that's right. So I'll explain how the golden spiral works. I'll explain how the male gaze works. And then I sort of point out that this isn't a new thing. It's something that they that kept happening over and over again. And then I have a brief segue into talking about this Spider-Woman comic drawn by Milo Manara. Um, Milo is one of my, he's actually one of my favorite artists. I actually like Milo a lot. Milo is an Italian gentleman known for drawing erotic comics who for some reason Marvel decided to hire to draw covers for their superhero books. He's known for drawing porn. He is brilliant at it. He is undisputed as a master of that artistic form and really good, but he's famous for drawing naked people. That's what he does. And they're like, Oh, let's have him draw some superheroes. So Milo threw them how Milo would. (laughs) (laughs) And and people were like, what the hell is this, you know, centerfold doing on the cover of this comic book that I just bought for my daughter? I don't want. So there was some outrage. And in particular, <laughs> there was outrage for one particular picture of Spider-Woman where 
She is crawling up over the ledge of a building with her butt stuck stuck very, very high into the air. I know that picture. Yes. And it's weird. It's not human looking. Tremendous amount of butt cleavage. Yeah. And it. Yep. Yep. Nope. I know exactly what image you're talking about, actually. it's, It's literally an image that like. It it looks super pornographic and also weirdly mm-hmm. non-anatomic. So people argue about that. They try to get it pulled. There's a war online because of course there is. And of course you have, you know, you have some feminists saying this is super offensive, which it was. And then you have um you have some comics gate <laughs> types. This is the early days of comics gate saying, no, this is just the feminazis with their liberal SJW agenda, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And there's an argument. And you have Mav and I standing in the store going, what did they expect from this guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's Milo Manara. <laughs> and by the way, have you ever seen his work? Right. And uh, by the way, I am a fan. It's an awful picture. It is probably the worst yeah. thing he's ever yeah. drawn. Yeah. He is way better than that. Yeah. Um he, all the other yeah. comics in this in the series were actually way better. That's not his best work. So Milo does that. And like, of course he does, because that's what he does. It's the only thing he ever, he ever draws. Right. And um, there's outrage. Yeah. And you get what you pay what's for. interesting is there's this woman named, uh, she's a model named Ivy Cosplay. That's what she calls herself, who dressed up like Spider-Woman. And she recreates the pose for her website perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. She looks exactly right like that. And of course... The Reddit monsters use this as their ammunition for, oh, see it. See, the feminazis are crazy. They're, you know, they're just, this is absolutely accurate. Yeah, because <laughs> it's physically possible. possible it therefore, because it's fine. she is a very limber woman, which Spider Woman right. would be and fine. And the argument became about whether or not this was anatomically possible as opposed to. That's not really that's yeah, that's not not really why it was offensive. (laughs) It was never that was never the problem. Yeah, if if that was the case, that Superman is offensive because he'd pick up cars. Specifically, that Spider Woman series was being launched and aimed at a younger female audience. It was a book for for fourteen year old girls. The choice of that image, yeah, the choice of that image, given what their stated purpose for that series was made the right. whole thing then also extra why did you pick yeah, that person to try I, I don't fault milo for this milo wanted to check oh you'll give me a job sure no it's yeah, like but he, milo that's his draws, job right no yeah. it's like whoever it was the person yeah. who like decided that that was he, the right guy for the job for adult italian men like all of, that's that's what he that's what he's famous for right. they're yeah. yeah they're you know it's it's a very different audience um so that becomes the argument and so that's where i started looking at it and it's like well so i did my overlay and, and it really is doing the the golden spiral thing you know she that's that's why it works which um by the way milo would be aware of that he would do this consciously it, it is exactly the kind of thing that he mm-hmm. knows to draw and i'm sure he did that on purpose whether ivy cosplay is aware of it or not who knows but she is able to recreate it. And then you throw in this other guy, an artist who I actually really like named Frank Cho. And Frank Cho is, um, mm-hmm. he's a more mainstream artist, but he also has kind of a cheesecakey pen up style. And Frank is odd because he is a very liberal guy. Um, uh, pretty much a, he's an Asian guy, pretty much, a, to go back to our subcultures, he's he's definitionally a social justice warrior in almost every way, shape, and form, except that he's very, very, very anti-censorship. The idea of censoring anything is anathema to Frank Cho. So he takes to his favorite thing, his new hobby becomes going to conventions and drawing other characters in the Spider-Woman pose and selling them. Oh, boy. So all the 
incel MRA guys who are saying this is, you know, oh, yeah, see, you get him, Frank Joe, and, yeah. and he becomes an, an icon for Comics Gate. And then he has to like issue these statements of, oh, no, I don't like you. No, 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 that's not what I'm doing here. I just think any artwork's okay. And it, and it becomes weird. But I look at Cho's work, and the thing is, they're better than Milo's are. They're not as offensive. They're somehow not as offensive. Mm. And Ivy's picture is not as offensive. And that's where I started realizing it's not like, yes, I realize it's the same pose in all three of them. And it's not the fact that it's not realistic that someone can be in that pose. Ivy clearly can be. And I look at Frank's work and when he draws Spider-Gwen in that pose or Spider-Woman or he's drawn Cammy from he's drawn Cammy from Street Fighter. He's got several of them where he just. Also, please, please tell me he's drunk. Deadpool because uh, I he Someone did. I don't remember if it was his or not, but there was a, there, there's a Deadpool one. Yeah. He's gonna say someone. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a Harley Quinn one. He he he, he just keeps reproducing sure, this image. I'm sure, there's a Hawkeye one. There's the Hawkeye yeah. Initiative online, which draws Hawkeye in all yeah. those bad poses. Yeah, I yeah, mentioned I Hawkeye Initiative in the paper. So he does this, and no matter how you feel about what he's doing politically, his work doesn't feel as offensive, even though it is just as impossible looking as what Milo did. Like it, like I look at the pictures, it's like that's not anatomical. And yeah, and the. The content is not right. meaningfully and so different. So what I realized is it's not that the picture is not realistic that became that becomes the problem. Where I think the problem is is that Milo is too realistic, which is to say he's slightly more real or not slightly. He's actually re- very much more realistic in art style than Cho is. Cho's got a distinct, almost cartoony style. That's designed to yeah. look like a like like a realistic cartoon. I can't explain it any better than that. It's a it's very distinctive. Yeah. And Milo looks like he's trying to draw a fantasy mag cover, which is much more realistic. And I started thinking about Scott McCloud's big triangle, where he argues that you can be you can make things super realistic and they are like a, you can take a photo like Ivy cosplay, and that is a receptive um, image. It is an image that I understand naturally by looking at it because I associate it as a human being. I can draw a smiley face that's just a circle with two dots and a line, and I can say, and I know that's a face, but it's perceptive. My brain is just filling in the words and saying that this is how people are supposed Mm -hmm. to look. And I can do abstract images that don't look like anything and are just purely aesthetic. Here's just shapes. And McLeod argues that the more perceptive something is, the more towards the smiley face, the less, uh, you know, the, the more it can be anybody and the more your brain's just thinking about an idea. Whereas the more towards the um, the realistic photographic phase, you need things to be very, very real. And then in the abstract phase, it doesn't matter. It's just visually pleasing. And I argue that what ends up happening is you can map McLeod's big triangle into a concept from um, from computer science and robotics called the Uncanny Valley, which Katia will know mm-hmm. from video games. The idea of an Uncanny Valley is mm-hmm. that the more realistic something is as a human, the closer something looks to being humanoid the more people are able to associate empathy for it. Why does Wally effectively a Roomba have eyes? It's so that we feel emotions for him in the, in the movie, in the movie Wally. So the more humanoid we make our robot, the more you end up liking them until you hit this specific point where say the movie Beowulf and the movie Polar Express are where it's just realistic enough that you know this is supposed to be photorealistic but it's not quite right and it becomes super creepy and off-putting until you get better 
are like rogue yeah. one. That's, that's why, like, well, and it's like why when when you see like AI, like. Uh, I mean, the, the reason this comes from robotics, particularly, is like because like a lot of like when you're seeing those like AIs that like especially like they almost are always female, which there's a that's another episode mm-hmm. is like women and mm-hmm. and representations of AI and robotics, but um, they're really creepy because they look they like they should right. be human, <laughs> but they're not right. They're not quite close enough. I mean, this is I mean this is like a, a also just like a classic trope of mm-hmm. of like science mm-hmm. fiction. I mean, it's even 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 like humanoid a- aliens. Like part of the reason why like. Uh, like a lot of uh, uh, what's the what's the guy in Star Trek? Data. Data. Thank you. Like that's I mean exactly why Data is just like slightly off. Although Data is more of a funny character, but he's funny precisely for the same right, reason. He's playing he's like into the uncanny off. valley because he's not quite human. You know something something mm-hmm. feels weird about it. But but I think if you translate mm-hmm. the concept of the uncanny valley to cartooning to comics, there is a reason why we can laugh at Daffy Duck, who's clearly humanoid, but silly when he gets shot in the face and we laugh at that. But when the Punisher does it in a comic where which is much more realistic looking, you, you're like, oh, this is vile and gross. You know, like they're like you, you move up, like you move right. closer and closer to that to the uncanny valley and it becomes it becomes visceral and real and you develop real feelings as opposed to just laughing at things like you do with, uh, and my argument Mm -hmm. is right. My argument is that Ivy is obviously as a real person, she is beyond the uncanny Valley. She is Ivy cosplay is a real person. And on the other side of the uncanny Valley, Mm -hmm. you have Cho, which is just cartoony enough that you're willing to sort of forgive the weirdness of even, I mean, you might be offended by the sexualized content, but the weirdness of the pose isn't off-putting. And then you have Minara, who's more photorealistic, but not quite photorealistic. So the fact that she's contorted in a way that doesn't feel like it should work puts him right in the middle of the uncanny valley. It becomes creepy. Not just sexualized, but it's creepy. Yeah, And that space is exactly where Rob Liefeld lives. His his entire career is right there. He's the line mm-hmm. in the Uncanny Valley where um because he because he is actually a talented natural artist. I realize that. He you know, he's got some skill. He's very good at what he does, but he's moved away from the perceptual area of the big triangle. His non-iconic representations are abstract. He's got gratuitous lines. He's got things that don't feel quite feel realistic and they don't quite give you, you know, sort of a cartoony value. So they move him over and mm-hmm. push him like his they push him into the uncanny valley in a way that all of those things seem weird because honestly if you look at those women that he draws they're no less realistic than Jessica Rabbit or Hello Nurse or any number of cartoon characters who are designed to be read from Tex Avery car- comics cartoons that were um 50 or 60 years ago like they're all designed to be sexy mm-hmm. and they're completely out of proportion Betty Boop but it doesn't bother you because I mean, they're cl- cartoony. Classic, classic pinup yep, art. Classic pinup art as well. All of that works because uh, right. it's cartoony enough to sort of, oh, I can accept this. And then when you when you move off of that just a little bit, mm-hmm. you end up in Leafeld territory. And when you look at McLeod's big triangle, you'll see that I notice the very bottom of it, all the way from the perceptive to the receptive corners is very, very packed. But the more you move up to the uh, up towards the art, the aesthetic, you know, picture plane, he calls it the emptier the triangle gets, because mm-hmm. I think in comics doing too much of that moves you into this uncanny valley space, which is what makes Lee Field sort of weird. And that's kind of what I'm arguing. For. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because, I mean, that's also, I mean, when I was talking about robotics, that's actually why, like, I mean, so both actually in real life as well as in science fiction and a lot of genre representations, AIs and robots almost automatically default to being women. Yes. Um, I mean, just think of like Alexa, things like that. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that, but there's, that's another show. Um, but I mean, I think that's a bit better. That's also why like robot, like robots and AIs often get like hypersexualized. But one of the things that I was thinking of is I think also the, the name of the was a Ivy was the name of the cosplay. Ivy cosplay. Yes. <laughs> cosplay, right, is Ivy real, cosplay. I, cosplay is her last name apparently. And I'm sure that's completely real. <laughs> yep. I entirely buy it. I have no reason to think otherwise. Um, but I think also the thing that I like, I imagine you've thought of this, but I think also the, the thing is it's about, about this is like, she has agency over like what she chooses to do with her own body. Obviously she's Absolutely. the person taking the photo right. and like the more cartoony representations, like you're ta- saying, like we don't identify those as people in the same way. I mean, when I brought up classic pinup art, that's in some way, I mean, you've, I'm sure people have seen those like online photo compilations of like mm-hmm. those those uh, art styles as like the original Photoshop, right? And yeah. they were uh, in, uh, originally emerged actually to skirt censorship laws. It makes a lot of sense because it's like as soon as you start getting realistic enough that you start identifying this image as like more human than not. So like approaching the Uncanny Valley, the issue of I think agency also becomes more problematic when it's just a cartoon. I'm less concerned about like the, the representation of like female sexuality um, sort of like why Jessica rabbit doesn't freak me out as much as says the person who has a Jessica rabbit pin on her shirt. Uh, <laughs> because like, yeah, it's like, this is very obviously like poking fun at something and not realistic and not meant to be representation of reality. But as soon as you get that on Fat Valley, you're like, do you really think this is fantasy still, or do you think mm-hmm. this is real? Jessica Rabbit, you don't, you can feel you, you don't have to feel bad for her because you only associate her as real as Roger Rabbit or Daffy She's Duck. She's just drawn that way, right? Yeah, you can drop an animal She's just and drawn that be way. fine. <laughs> also, I will say Jessica Rabbit was like was like I, I was not into Disney princesses as a child. I was very into <laughs> Jessica Rabbit, so we we may have just found my particular. <laughs> I may just be a a particular audience. But yeah, that's where I'm going. I'm basically I'm establishing sort of a through Liefeld. I'm establishing rules of where we allow um, representation to sort of work for us in how we view a gendered image, because I think what ends up happening is Mm -hmm. the same thing actually happens with his male characters. We don't know. You know, it's very easy to look at his at his artwork and say, I don't like this because it's too sexualized. And it's really easy to say that when you look at his female characters and his male characters don't come across as sexualized in the same way, but they still look weird and creepy in the same way. They look scary (laughs) and big. Yeah. Yeah. They like, he's clearly, you know, he's, he's obviously not as, not as preoccupied with boobs with an exception of one Captain America picture that I'm sure if (laughs) Hannah's still looking at that page, she has seen it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But he's, he, but, his the proportions are off enough to where things almost look painful in the ways that they're standing in a way that yeah doesn't it's, happen with yeah them. it's even like when Im- like images of like really extreme bodybuilders even yes. like i mean obviously real people but even those can become kind of like a little creepy because it's just like oh boy i i referenced an anecdote earlier um one of our local artists, uh, Ed Pisker, who's doing an X-Men series now. Um, and, and he grew up during that era and he, he's, he's influenced by a lot of different stuff, a lot of underground comics and independent comics, but he's a big fan of all that early image stuff. Just unabashedly loves it. 
recognizing mm-hmm. the bad anatomy and all the problems with it. And there was fairly recently, like within the last six months or so, there was a, a Wolverine epic collection that came out collecting a run of 25, 30 issues or so from sometime in the 90s. And he was standing there flipping through it. And there was like a three issue Rob Liefeld story in this big collection. And he said, and it, it, it just, it made me think about this differently because I've just sort of dismissed Liefeld forever. And he said, you, know, you, you flip through this mm-hmm. book and he's absolutely right. The only thing that stands out in the entire book are those Liefeld chapters. You just pick that book mm-hmm. up and flip through it. The only thing your eye notices are those three chapters. The rest of the stuff is just, mm-hmm. it's serviceable. It's fine comic book It's homogenized. It's homogenized. It's drawn the Marvel you way. You don't notice it. Mm-hmm. But, but, he was the first. And, mm-hmm. and that, to me, that explained his popularity in ways I hadn't mm-hmm. considered before. And, and, I, and I, I get that now. Like, I still don't think he's a good artist, but there's an impact <laughs> and a power to what he does. He wasn't drawing out. the Marvel way. Yeah. He was doing something different. And again, you talk to, to speak, speak of creators that we've met. You know, we've both met Ron Friends many times. The local creator drew Spider-Man for many, many years and Thor and Thunderstrike. And Ron... I love his artwork, but I in do. 2019, Ron Ron's artwork looks exactly well. Not exactly. I can tell it apart because yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm a connoisseur. Right. But stylistically, he looks like John Buscema and Jack Kirby well, and, and Ron, Steve Ditko. Ron is the last of the how to draw comics the Marvel way artists, and that's exactly yeah. what he wanted to be mm-hmm. when he went into it. I mean, he picked that book. Up yeah, he is intentionally in that. That's what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That's what he learned to do. And he made a career out of it. And he's incredibly mm-hmm. good at it. Mm-hmm. And he's intentionally that. And Rob came out at a point when you were just moving away from that specific point on the big triangle mm-hmm. to where you were allowed to be expressive. And you were allowed to be expressive in a way that, you know, I, I get why it was appealing to 14 year old boys. Mm-hmm. I was one of them. And it, you know. And he's mutated in ways, and not just uh, not just my sensibility is changing. His artwork has changed oh, over the years too, in a way in which I actually think is even less good. <laughs> but personally, um, like he's stockier now, um, and things like you know, he took more and more chances with the. As time goes on, it's like let's make for for the really obvious one is the female characters. Let's make their waist tinier and tinier, and yeah. their spines curvier and curvier, and it becomes more and more prevalent. He's drawing mm-hmm. feet now. Yes. Um, but yeah, but he's yeah, but he's got this aesthetic that he, you know, he still maintains. Yeah, say what you will about him, it is his style. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. It, and he and he's <laughs> certainly he's certainly doing the thing. <laughs> so that's so that's when I, that's who I'm analyzing for this for this paper. Okay, mm-hmm. so so <laughs> so you've resolved we'll nothing. Re- we'll resolve nothing. And we've nor, resolved nor, nothing. Nor we're to. Yeah, nor are we trying to. So. Yeah. Not this show. Yeah. Anyway. But we are, we, I mean, well, what we're talking is that, you, I mean, you guys gave me things to think about, yeah, which is good, yeah, which is what, what I wanted. And I hope last mm-hmm. week for you guys as well. My advisor said that if you already know the answer, it's not interesting. You should be interested in problems. I think, so. mm-hmm. I think that's a big, I think that's a big point of academia. And I think that's, I think that's why we, we never resolve anything on the show. It's not, this isn't a show about resolving things. It's, it's a questions. show about thinking about yeah, things. About yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was about to say, it's like, I feel like the entire premise of academia in general and like anybody who's sort of interested in like asking these kinds of questions, going to conferences, it's like the questions are always much more interesting than the answers. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, honestly, like whenever we're talking about subjects like race, gender, sexuality, empire, whatever, any anything, anything. anything. like big anything that is it two plus you know, two big big topics capitalism whatever there's no answer and if we pretend to have answers everyone yeah. would laugh us out of the room anyway right <laughs> and even when there are answers it's like it's culture culture changes the answers change 
Wow, that sounds so, like yeah. we resolved something. So we've resolved <laughs> nothing. Nothing. <laughs> but Alrighty. hopefully people enjoyed it and hopefully they have feedback for us because I, I would this show particularly I'd really appreciate hearing stuff uh, you know hopefully sooner rather than later because we've got to you know all four of us have got to go get the speech these speeches this, in this like 10 next, days this time so, next week we will be there mm, will we really oh yeah. wow <laughs> yep it's next week yep <laughs> so, oh, well, this is well, so yeah. scary <laughs> but um, so if you're listening to the show on Monday it comes out on definitely leave us a comment let us know and we don't have we don't have guests to like ask first. So instead, I will just go in reverse order of when we join the show. So, Hannah, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers. And at this point, I guess I'm probably tweeting about PCA, but maybe still <laughs> Stephen King. <laughs> or both, you know, entire, I mean, it's all related. There's an entire Stephen King track at PCA, I thought. So. Yeah, yeah, there are oh, there there are go. several papers there. You can go find maybe, your people. Maybe I will submit my tweet as a proposal there next year. <laughs> Stephen King, Victorian novelist. Done. <laughs> that's been, that's Great, and then I can be on the panel argue. and talk about talk about how video game designers are transcendentalists. Yep. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, well, Katya. An actual paper that I've written. Where would, where would they find you if they wanted to learn more about that? <laughs> Uh, well, that is still being tinkered with and hopefully sending out for publication this summer. But so if that ever happens, I will let you all know. <laughs> uh, but as far as my other escapades, you can find me on Instagram at just that nerd kid, because otherwise I for, surprisingly for a digital studies person do not believe in social media. <laughs> Actually, probably because I'm a digital studies person. I don't believe in social media because I've read way too much about cybersecurity in the last year. <laughs> Uh, nothing is nothing's secret anymore. Nothing's private. <laughs> no, exactly. Nothing's secret. But it also means that it's for me. It's not even like my paranoia about like wanting to keep things secret. It's just like nothing's secret. So why do I need to broadcast it? Mm, interesting. And Wayne, yeah, you you can find me here pretty much. Wayne-Wise dot com. Don't bother Twitter because you know, you'll just find me occasionally reposting Vox podcast tweets. Uh, but, <laughs> that, yeah. on, in the the Stephen King track at, at PCAC, the uh, PC whatever it is we're going to. One of them is <laughs> looking at one of them is looking at Arthurian elements in the Dark Tower. So, so there's that. So, so that that's the stuff I talked about this episode. So 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 we can find mm -hmm. you in that room listening, I assume. Possibly, depending on who else we <laughs> conflict with. So. <laughs> And if and if on on the chance anyone listening is heading to PCA ACA, you should come yeah, say hi. Absolutely, and you know, mm -hmm. and uh, in fact, I know people who are absolutely going to be on PCA ACA are listening because oh, yeah. they've been guests on the show before. But if you if you are there and you've not been a guest on the show before, come you know, come be one because that's that's where we get a lot of our guests. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my blog at chrismaverick.com. And I I actually wrote one today. I wrote a blog today where I was thinking about the ways in which kids swear in internet lingo. So check that out. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Vox Popcast or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Vox Popcast or on the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where you can see what we're talking about next week and you can comment and you can give us ideas for shows. Once again, if you've 
listen this far, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and leave us a review on iTunes. Five star reviews help other people find the show, make us more popular. And as pointed out, keep me from crying. So we would appreciate that. <laughs> and I'm running out of tissues. <laughs> what, what, if, what if they want you to cry? Then they're Ooh. mean, horrible people. <laughs> Why would you want that? <laughs> um, anyway, anyway. I mean, if that is if that is true, we could trade videos of Mav crying four or five star reviews. Maybe we'll get a Patreon and we'll offer those. I don't know. <laughs> we don't have that. <laughs> anyway, if you're interested, leave a five star review. Let us know. <laughs> I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out right now. I'd once again like to thank you at home for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye. 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 So how long have you been drawing comic books? Since I was about seven years old, little kid. What did your parents think about it? They hated it. They hated it. Oh, yeah. After I got a job and they saw that you can make a living out of it, they, you'll hear no complaints anymore. And you created X-Force? Mm-hmm. So what is this drawing on? This is the Spike Man. And what's this right here? This is the camera on top of your head that will record the wrongdoings of others. So Rob, have you had any formal art training? No. Just uh, a lot of imagination, I think. Wait, so, so I say it and then look down? Or just open it and say it?